All right, guys, I think we are ready to begin. It's a little after 12.30. Nope. We do want to say, if those of you who came a little later, uh, is, is it today? Sunday was McLean's 91, right? 91st birthday. So, yes. Yes. Today? Today's your birthday? Happy birthday. All right. Yes. And she's not 91, she said. <laughs> That's right. 21. We'll just leave it at that. So, yeah. Well, we're glad that you're here, especially this first time. We really appreciate you coming. And we do this every Tuesday. We come, we sit, we eat, hang out for about 30 minutes, and then we do a quick 30-minute session, and then we go back to work or to whatever it is that we do. Um, the food is always provided free by Ruth's, and we just ask that you leave a donation whatever you can spare, whatever you can afford, or whatever you want to give the ladies in the back that bring the food out every week is goes straight to them as a blessing. So we're in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're in chapter 2 this week. Before I forget, announcement, next week we will not meet. Next week, I'm going to be in New York. Um, I tried to get somebody to come fill in, wasn't able to do it, uh, he wasn't available. So instead of trying to juggle all that, I already told the front, so next week, we will not meet, so you guys can help spread the word. If you know anybody that's not here, let them know. Uh, who? Oh, as well? No, no, no. Oh, next week, since we won't be there. Okay, well, that's why we're really, yeah. That's why we're really not coming, because it's going to be a blowout party. We're going to be on a party bus uh, hitting uptown. <laughs> the city shuts down for your birthday. So anyway, just know that. Don't, don't come next week. But come the week after, and we're going to continue through Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 2. Chapter 1, just to reiterate, if you haven't uh, listened to the first, so we, we record every week. That's why I've got a microphone here. That's why the camera's recording right there. We record, we put it online every week on YouTube, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, so that you can follow along because this is a sequential study. And you, if you miss a week, you have an appointment, you have a meeting, you're sick, whatever, it doesn't mean you're out of luck. So go back, listen to the podcast, watch the YouTube video, and you can catch up on where we are. But we're in the part of Deuteronomy known as the historical prologue. We said last week, Deuteronomy is structured, the entire book is structured after an ancient Near East Hittite suzerainty vassal treaty. That's a mouthful, but it's a way of saying this type of agreement that would be written between nations when one agreed to serve the other. The lesser agreed to serve the greater because the greater had done something on behalf of the lesser. Well, in this case, the greater is not another king, it's God. And if you remember our Exodus study three years ago, the subtitle was God is King. Because God bringing Israel out of Egypt was God saying, I am their king, Pharaoh is not. And they will serve me rather than serving Pharaoh as they had been doing for 400 years. And the word serve and the word worship are the same word in Hebrew. 
So all of this, what we've been in for these past few years, what God's doing with His people is He's bringing them out of being ruled by one king and delivering them and saying, now I am the one true king that you'll serve. I am the true suzerain. You will be my faithful vassals. And so the part would happen is this treaty would be written up. It would be a covenant ceremony. It would be read aloud. There would usually be some type of sacrifice and a covenant meal would be celebrated together. And then two copies of the covenant would be prepared. One would be taken back to the king's palace to put in the temple of his God. One would be in the vassal's uh, temple of their God. Well, in Israel, there is the same thing. The king of Israel is the God of Israel. So the two copies of the treaty, the two tablets, go into the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the temple of Israel's God. Because Israel's God dwells among Israel, not in a far-off land. So all of this echoes the normal political, legal, religious understandings of the peoples in the ancient Near East. And that's important to realize so that when you know what you're reading, what you're reading is a, is a, is a it's not bedtime reading, okay? It's not a page turner. Uh, you're not reading a devotional thought for the day. You're reading an ancient Near East political treaty. So that should let you, give you expectations of how this thing should read and not make you feel like you're dumb or unspiritual because you don't get it when you sit down to do your quiet time. That's one of the things that people do in the Bible and they get frustrated and they just are like, I don't know what to do with this. I just don't get it. The Holy Spirit must not be speaking to me. Or they turn to Philippians or some other book in the New Testament that makes them feel good. And the point of it is, no, this is the story of Israel because we are the, this is, this is the people of God under the Sinai Covenant and their story. This is crucial to know because Jesus comes along and then He claims to be the fulfillment of this entire story. So if we know their story, we know what Jesus was fulfilling. If we don't know their story, we think Jesus just came and died to pay for my sin so I could get a ticket to heaven. And that is a tiny, 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 tiny part of the Gospel. It is true. It's not wrong. But it's such a tiny part of the Gospel. And so what we want to do is flesh out the bigger picture of the Gospel. And so God's recounting now, Moses is recounting to Israel the journey of God has brought them out of Egypt in the wilderness to Mount Sinai, gave them law, gave them uh, organization, prepared them as an army, gave them the promise that He would drive the nations, the particular nations He was sending them to judge, out of Canaan. All of this in fulfillment of the promise going all the way back to Genesis 15 that He made to their ancestor Abraham. And now the time has come for that. And so God says, well, the last, we ended last week with them saying that Israel refusing to do that. They'd seen all the wonders, they'd seen all the signs, but then they saw the people that they would be going up against. And for whatever reason, they said, we can't do that. We'd rather go back to Egypt. And so God said, fine, you will die in the desert and your children will inherit the promise of the covenant blessing. You will not. So they wandered for 38 years around this area called Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea. Just this area south of the Dead Sea, sort of in northwest Saudi Arabia or in the Sinai Peninsula, somewhere in there. Place names are very fluid in this part of the Bible. So if somebody ever points on a map and says, this is where this spot is, probably not. Maybe, maybe not. Um, these are, again, these were nomadic peoples and there's not a lot of settlements and everything. So just the places are fluid, but they're in this southern area. Going to go up into take the land of Canaan, but they go back south because they're afraid to. 
<clears throat> then, after they are there for many days, chapter 2, verse 1, so we turned back and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Seir. So for a long time they're wandering around this hill country south of Edom in, again, northwest Saudi Arabia today, just that rugged mountainous hill country. Then the Lord said to me, verse 2, You've made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. These are the Edomites. Uh, they will be afraid of you. Be very careful. Do not provoke them to war. I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I've given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You're to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. So he says, now you're going to go north. And you're going to go up so they're... This is kind of modern day Israel would be here. And this would be like Jordan over here. Sinai Peninsula down here. Saudi Arabia down here. Red Sea down here. So they were going to go straight up in the land. They, that, that plan's gone. So for 40 years, they're wandering down here. Then God says, now turn north. So they're going to come this way. Now they're going to come up this route. And they're going to come up through this first country. There's going to be three countries. Edom, Ammon, Moab. Edom, Ammon, Moab. Edom. The Edomites, Jacob's brother Esau, those are the descendants of his people. That's their land. Ammon and Moab were the children of Lot, Abraham's, brother, or Abraham's nephew. That's their lands there. What God's going to say in this passage is first you've got to go through the Edomite country. Do not provoke them to war. Do not even act like you're going to fight them because you're not. I'm not going to even give you any of their land, even enough to put your foot on. In other words, I'm not even going to give you a footprint-sized piece of their land because I have given this land to the descendants of Esau. Now, this is a radical chapter because in this chapter, we usually think, well, God has all these nations, but He's really just Israel is the one that gets the land. That's what makes Israel special is God gave them land. He gave them promises. This chapter blows that theory away. No, Israel is not special because God gave them land. They're special because God entered into the covenant with them. Part of that covenant was that they would have their spot of land. But he's saying in this chapter, before they ever even get in that land, hey, there's other peoples in this world, other descendants of Abraham, and I've given them land too. It's not like God says, Israel's mine and everybody else to heck with them. He has His plans for the nations outside of Israel. And His plans are sovereign. And they're not given in the Bible because this is the story of His plans with Israel. We get just enough of a hint, just enough of a glimpse to know that God is doing stuff outside of Israel, but we get the story of Israel. So we, don't need, to, we need to be careful that we don't confuse the fact that we only get Israel's story with the idea that God is only doing stuff in Israel. He's doing stuff outside of this. And it'll go all the way into the New Testament times when the, when the Gospel spreads the Gentiles and people come and they're like, wait a minute, They've already received the Holy Spirit? Or they've already received baptism? Well, oh my gosh, that's, how does that even work? They're supposed to do it in this order. And it's like, no, no, they've already received. And then it says, we'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, these are people who are Gentiles, and the apostles are like, well, they're receiving the Holy Spirit. Like, they're speaking in tongues. They're, they're, they're entering into the covenant, the new covenant. How's that possible? And you get these glimpses and these hints. Old and New Testament, God's saying, I'm doing stuff outside of what you know about. So just trust me. You focus on what you know. 
but I'm bigger than what you know. And that gives us not enough. Now, there's two errors that we want to avoid. That doesn't give us warrant to say, therefore, we don't need to reach the nations. We don't need to preach the Gospel. People outside of God have their own way. No. That's not true. God is working outside. We don't know what His dealings with people outside the covenant people of God are, Old Testament or New Testament. But we know the general state of mankind. We know the the far reach of sin. We know the deceitfulness of the human heart. We know that that has to be transformed through the infilling of the Holy Spirit in order for someone to be free from sin's grip in their life, which leads them to death eternally. We know these things. So when it comes to the question of, well, what about people outside? What about people who've never heard the Gospel? What about, and people always go, what about the guy in the hut in Africa? Well, it's getting to be where there's more people in Africa that have heard the Gospel than there are in America as the Gospel's spreading. So that's an old stereotype that kind of needs to start dying out because the Gospel is, the church is growing rapidly in Africa and South America. You know, what about people in the jungles in the Amazon? The Gospel's spreading in the South America. The Gospel's spreading in the global South. It's spreading all over. But, in our minds, though, we still think, well, if they never grew up in the faith, then how do they hear? What's God? Do they just go to hell? Do they just lost and dying? The short answer is, we don't know what God's doing there. But we do know what He's doing with the covenant, and we know we're part of it. And so our job is just to go take that to the nations wherever He sends us. Trusting that He's already prepared the way. Trusting that He has not left Himself without a witness. Trusting that He and He alone is the judge of all the earth who will do what is right. Abraham's own words. So we know this about the character of God, so then that's why we then don't have to lose sleep over what's God going to do with the people that haven't heard. He's going to do something and it's going to be right. All we know is what's we, what are we doing with what we've been given? How are we advancing this story? The other error is to say, well, anybody that hasn't heard this story doesn't know God and is cut off from God. And they're, they're, they're rushing headlong into hell and this and that. We can't say that either because of glimpses like this. God's doing something. We know that apart from Christ, we know that apart from that radical transformation of someone's heart by the work of the cross through the Holy Spirit, we know that apart from that, they cannot inherit eternal life. But we don't know how that is going to get into their life. So again, we've got to be very careful about putting ourselves in the role of God as the judge of all the earth and the fate of all the souls of the people in the middle of the Amazon or the Mongolian steppe or wherever people are. And we just know this is what we know and this is where we are. So in this chapter, before they even get in the land, God's giving them a clue, giving them a hint that he, they're not the only people that He's working with. And that's a huge point to make in, in, in the Torah. In the Torah, which some people say is the most exclusive document, it's just all about God and Israel, He's showing His favoritism, that's people that haven't read Torah. That's people that haven't heard this message. That's people that skip over this chapter because it's got funny names and it's boring. And that's why we don't do that in this study. We go through because there are gems to be mined in these pages of the Old Testament. So he's going to emphasize this point again. He says, so, uh, verse 7, the Lord your God has blessed you. Moses again, talking to the people. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. 
Verse 8, so we went on past our brothers, the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir. We turned from the Arbor Road, that's the road that's running this north-south route. We turned from the Arbor Road, which comes up from Eloth and Ezion Geber, that's right down on the shore of the Dead Sea. Today it's the city of Elat in Israel, like it's a sea resort on the Gulf of Aqaba. We turned up from there um, and traveled along the desert road of Moab, the road going up to Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I've given Ar, and that's a a synonym for Moab, or the the area that they are. I've given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. If you remember our Genesis study, back in Genesis chapter 19, Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed along with the other cities of the plains. Lot and his daughters fled out past to the Dead Sea in this arid mountainous cave region. His, him, his two daughters. His two daughters got him drunk. Each one had sex with him so that they could get pregnant, so that they could carry on their line. One of the sons was named Ammon. The other was named Moab. So these are the incestuous descendants of Lot after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even these people, God is saying, I'm not giving you their land. I'm not giving you their land. Do not equate a people's sinfulness or their shady origins with free reign to just take their stuff. God is very specific about what land He's giving Israel in this whole thing. The land of the seven Canaanite peoples that He names and no one else. Unless those peoples come and attack them. Which is what happened in the book of Numbers, which we read last year. That the Moabite king and the Ammonites and some of these others got together, they went and attacked, and God gave them over. And then Israel was able to claim some of that land. Only after they had been attacked. The plan was, no, you're going to Canaan. So that's really, again, important to keep in mind. He goes on to say, I've given uh, R to the sense of Lot as possession. Now, verse 10. If your Bible's relatively new, there will probably be a parenthesis right here. Because this section is a parenthetical addition to the text later after the time that this is happening to clarify to the readers the things that had gone on in this area before. And this is a fascinating Fascinating parenthesis. This is what it says, verse 10. The Emites used to live there. Now, Emites is a word that's just been translated, it's just been transliterated into English. But it comes from a verb that means fear, terror, or dread. And it has the notion of the terrible ones, the dreadful ones. It's not, there's not like there's a country called Emite or the Emites. Or this is a name. This is, again, think of the English word boogeymen. That's a good way of thinking of what this would connote. Or Hottentots, or um, savages, or, or any of these other words that may have originally had some historic meaning, but in our mindset, they've just become synonymous with these unnamed, maybe supernatural, maybe creepy, something other than just ordinary person. That's what he's saying. The Emites used to live there a people strong and numerous, as tall as the Anakites. Anakites were these legendary, gigantic, mighty people from ancient, ancient, ancient times that all of the people in the ancient Near East had this residual memory of them. Whether they were actually literal people or whether they were just this this fearsome notion of whether they were a legendary view in the minds of the people What God's saying here is the people, these people, the terrible ones that were here, the Emites, they were big and powerful. Tall as the Anakite. Tall as the giants. Scary as the boogeymen. 
That's the, what's being thought of here. And he says, um, like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites, but the Moabites called them Emites. We're losing, I'm losing you because there's all these ites. Here's what's going on. Again, it's transliterating rather than translating. And because of that, something's getting lost. And you're thinking these are talking about people groups. They're not. Rephites, Rephaim is the word that means shades or spirits or the souls of mighty dead kings. This is how it's used elsewhere in the Bible. Psalm 88, I think verses 11 and 12 it's used. Isaiah 14 it's used. This term, Rephite, Rephaim in Hebrew, means departed spirits of mighty people from legendary times. Mighty people who've been brought down to the grave and now they are like the old English word shades. If you read Tolkien or any of these fantasy writing shades of the dead, this, this supernatural or, or, or creepy, scary... So that's what the people called the peoples in these lands. The Rephaim, the shades, the, 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 the scary people. But these particular people, they didn't call them the Rephites, they called them the Emites, the terrible ones, the terrifying ones. So think of this, think of a, a, a land. Let's, let's say it's Charlotte, let's say South Mecklenburg County. Let's say South Mecklenburg County has a reputation of being inhabited by the spirits of these mighty people who used to live here. And they're terrifying and they're scary. And there's even people, you've seen some of these people, and they're scary and they're terrifying and they're warlike and they're this and they're that. And they're powerful. And so it's like that's the reputation South Mecklenburg has. But then another people came in and they settled there and they drove those people out. You would think, well, those are powerful people. They drove out the scary ones. They drove out the terrifying ones. They drove out the shades of the dead. They drove out the really bad people who were in this land. And God's saying, that's the land you're going through. So you're going to drive out people in the Canaanites just like these people have driven out these terrifying people. And your heart is already melted because you thought we can't take the or your parents thought we can't take the land. They're too mighty. There's even giants there. They're scary. What God's saying is, hey, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites, they've already done that too. I've went before them and drove out terrible people from their lands. And so God's telling Israel through this confirming, and the, the author here with this parenthetical note is saying, yeah, this has already happened. God's done this before, and it wasn't even with his covenant people. It was just with other peoples. How much more then will he drive out the Canaanites before his covenant people? All of that gets lost because of how we translate these words just straight into English and think of them as just other people. Who? Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Emites, Stalactites. You know, like we're just, who are all these? I stole that joke from my pastor. It's admittedly cheesy, but it brings home the point. So then he goes on to say, verse 12, the Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. The Horites, we don't know who it is, but the term, the Hebrew term Hor means cave. And so it's possibly the cave dwellers. You could say cavemen, uh, but scarier. Other scholars have said, no, this is talking about the Hurrians, which were an actual mighty people that were scattered throughout the region. There's debate there. We don't know. The point is, though, that phrase, the Horites used to live there, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land the Lord gave them as their possession. This is my looking back seeing what Israel's going to do and saying, yeah, just like Israel had done, the Edomites had also done. Fascinating note by a later editor 
putting all of this in perspective for later readers who would not know who these people are necessarily. Then he goes on to say, verse 13, the Lord said, now get up, back to the, now get up, cross the Zered Valley. So we cross the valley. Uh, 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men, literally of men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until He had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now, when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, and that's, by the way, that's God being, or Moses being sarcastic possibly, because remember these fighting men these mighty men, the people of the first census in numbers, didn't fight. They weren't mighty. They didn't want to go to war. And they died in the wilderness because of it. They didn't fight any battles. The one battle they did fought, they lost because God said, I'm not with you. So there's a little bit of irony there, possibly sarcasm, these mighty fighting men. After they died, then the Lord said to me, verse 18, today you're to pass by the region of Moab. So we're further north. At Ar. When you come to the Ammonites... Do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I've given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So just like their brothers, the Moabites, God's saying, I'm not giving you Ammonite territory. I'm not giving you Moabite territory. I've already given those to Lot's descendants. Verse 20, another parenthesis. That too was considered a land of the shades, a land of the spirits, a land of the Rephites, a scary land. Who used to live there? But the Ammonites, they didn't call them Emites. The Ammonites called them Zamzamites. And the Septuagint translates that as mighty one. We don't know exactly what Zamzum means, but it has a, a, an impressive or, or a mighty sounding name. And so the Septuagint authors translated it as, as the mighty ones. That's what they called them. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Again, giants. The Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, who lived in Seir when He destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and lived in their place to this day. As for the Avites, or the LX, uh, Septuagint says the Hivites, but we don't know who the Avites are, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, like down towards the coast, the Kaftarites, and these are people from Crete, the island of Crete, the Kaftarites coming out of Kaftar destroyed them and settled in their place. So what is all this meaning? Why is this in the historical prologue of the Deuteronomy Covenant? Well, the reason is because one of the reasons, and we have to go now, but we'll end with this, God is telling Israel before they even step foot in the Promised Land, you're not getting this land because you're mighty. You're not getting this land even because you're special. I've already done things with people far mightier than you, and I've already done things with other people, other descendants of your ancestor Abraham, who are also in their own lands. You are going to have a mission, and your mission is going to be to go and drive out the Canaanites. That's your job. Your army is being prepared to fight a specific battle. You're not being given carte blanche to just roll in and take this land. Why? That's how you did it in the ancient world. That's how you did it. Think Mad Max. Think post-apocalyptic. The strongest warlord is the one who takes and controls the land. And God's saying to Israel, it's not like that with you. You have an assignment. You've given, been given a specific point of land. Your job is to go in and take that. And you're going to do for the people there just what the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites have already done for people before them long before you even lived here. You're a part in this, Israel. 
You're my focus. You're going to be the means through which I reach the world. But know that you're a part of what's going on in the larger scheme of things. It's a great reminder in Deuteronomy, especially a book that, that's been talked of as like focusing on Israel and the land. And even today when there's conflicts in Israel and Palestinians and this and that, people jump back in and start quoting Torah about why Israel gets the land and Palestinians should leave, the Arabs should go somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. And this chapter is just kind of a massive like, oh, pump the brakes here. God's not concerned about land for the sake of land. God has a bigger picture. We have to find out what that picture is, how it fits into the plan of God. And only after doing that, then can we look at today and the political landscape and to figure out how God's still working with nations, what He's still doing, this and that. But that's way outside the scope of this study, and it is one minute over. So you guys have a great rest of the week. There's food here if you want some seconds. Do not come back next week. We won't be here the week after come back, and we'll see you then.